Welcome to the Emerging Women Podcast, where we hear from brilliant women leaders creating big change in the world. I'm Chantal Pirat, your host, and today we are talking to the first ever male interviewed on our podcast, Mike Robbins. And to quote Salt and Peppa, what a man! Before we start our conversation with today's guest, I want to make sure that you know how to get more support from Emerging Women. If you head over to EmergingWomen.com, you'll find some amazing resources, including a free trial of our membership community. This is the place to learn from trailblazing thought leaders, industry experts, coaches, and mentors, all focused on helping you live the truth of who you are. You'll be joining a group of amazing women like you who want change for themselves and the world. And I personally lead our monthly Circle Up video calls where we all come together to work through our edges in leadership and life. Don't go it alone, sisters. Check out EmergingWomen.com and sign up for your free trial today. Mike is a well-respected author, thought leader, and speaker in our community. His fourth book, Bring Your Whole Self to Work advocates a corporate cultural paradigm shift toward vulnerability to both improve employee engagement and boost the bottom line. I've always said that our mission at Emerging Women is not only to increase women's leadership, but also to create a new workplace cultural paradigm that ushers in a more humane, feminine ethos of collaboration, empathy, and compassion. And Mike Robbins is a leading voice on that front. During our podcast interview, Mike and I explore an essential question. What if the workplace was not just a place to develop your career, but an actual destination for personal transformation? In his latest book, Mike says that vulnerability, allowing ourselves to be genuinely seen, is the secret sauce to creating human trust and connections. Stemming from those connections is a feeling of psychological safety that leads to better performance, outcomes, and success. Mike is a sought-after speaker with corporate clients including Google, Microsoft, and Gap Incorporated, just to name a few. He's also a former professional baseball player who studied race and ethnicity at Stanford University. Growing up in Oakland, California, he was the only white player in his high school baseball league. Now Mike says he is no longer shy about speaking up on topics of race and gender as a white man. We also talk about what to say when tears come at work and so much more. Here's my compelling conversation, bring your whole self to work with an absolute gem of a guy, Mike Robbins. Hello and welcome, Mike. Hey, Chantal, I'm glad to be here. It's so exciting. You are our first male on the Emerging Women podcast. <laughs> and I remember talking to you saying, okay, when it's time to bring in the men, the voice of men, you will be the first one. And here we are five years wow. later. Well, thank you. I am uh, I'm honored. I'm grateful. I'm humbled. I, uh, I'm a little nervous about being first man, but I'll, I'll do the best I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's so interesting because I've always said with regards to emerging women and our ethos of creating a new paradigm that brings in more of the feminine. I'm always very careful to say feminine and masculine and not make it a gender equation, even though part right. of 
our mission is also to not only raise the feminine on the planet, but to increase women's leadership. Because as a yes. gender, I do think more women in leadership positions will help to balance things out and create a new paradigm for work that is more sane. So your work has a lot of that, you know, thread in it, focusing on humanity and more of the the feminine piece of leadership that seems yeah. to have been left out in the last, you know, 2000, 3000 years. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Yeah, I, I well, I, I agree. Absolutely. And I think it's really important. And I love what you're doing. And I'm grateful that we've gotten to know each other over the years and be friends. And I love being able to come to a few of the emerging women events that you've had here in the San Francisco area where I live. So it's nice to be on the podcast. And I listen to the podcast. So I am uh, really, really excited. Excellent. Awesome. Well, I'm excited too. You've just released a new book. Now you've got like so many books. Um, <laughs> this, and I want to just say them because I don't know what it is, but you're like the titling, you get the titling award because I love uh, every title of your book. Well, but thank you. Yeah, it's so good. And this new one, Bring Your Whole Self to Work, How Vulnerability Unlocks Creativity, Connection, and Performance. And I'm just so excited to talk about that. And I just want to mention a few other of your book titles, Be Yourself, Everyone Else is Already Taken. Love that. And, mm. you know, focus on the good stuff. You you have yeah. this thread in all of your books, and there's more, in, but the thread of authenticity, appreciation. I love that you focus on self-compassion. And, and now this whole concept of bringing all of these ideas that you have into the workplace yeah. um, is so needed. Yeah, well, and you know, I appreciate you saying all of that. And I know, you know, with your background in the publishing world as well, I, I take that as very high praise. I, I also think, you know, and I, how one of the many ways I think that some of what I've seen and, and what I've done and what I do with my work relates to a lot of the people in your community yeah. is I think there's a way that a lot of us and myself over all these years on my own sort of personal spiritual growth journey, if you will, um, there was often a question, even in my own work, and I've been, you know, writing and speaking and coaching for 17 years, but like, how do I bring all of that stuff that I know is so important to my life and to what makes me who I am into my work? Like, do I have to water it down? Do I have to change it up? Do I have to be more appropriate? All these things, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you and I've talked about this before that like the world continue to change and evolve in so many ways and kind of if the personal is over here on the left and the professional has been more here on the right, it's like they're coming together. And in some ways we can almost even look at that as masculine and feminine in lots of ways. But how do we bring, you know, again, the essence and the energy as I've been at some of your um, emerging women events, I know there's so many other great things that you do in your community, but just like how do you bring that passion and that power and bring it into work on Monday and bring it into the business meeting or the situations and particularly when, you know, it may be that, you know, there's one woman in the meeting or the mm -hmm. opportunities aren't there as much. And so how to have that same sense of passion and power and authenticity wherever we are, that's one of the biggest challenges. But I think that's a huge opportunity for a lot of us. Right. And you, you sort of set up the problem in the beginning with like pointing out the lack of engagement only 20 yeah. what is it 32 percent of people report feeling engaged at work that's right. appalling yeah 
Yeah. Well, and look, I mean, I think we got to look at there's multiple reasons for that. I mean, we could, you know, it's easy to point fingers and blame companies and organizations and sort of corporate America or whatever we want to say. And there's probably some of that. But it's also like, you know, how many of us just, you know, work for a paycheck and don't really challenge ourselves to be engaged? And there are a lot of challenges in the workplace and big companies, small companies, different industries. I mean, I've been working with different types and size of companies for the last 17 years. And there are definitely environments that are much more conducive to engagement and authenticity and all that. And there's some that are less, but at at the end of the day, um, I also think we have a personal responsibility. You know, you know, this even as being an entrepreneur yourself and having your own company in this community that you've built and with your team and as exciting as it is like, and I, I love my work, but there are days I'm not super engaged or I get stressed out or I get annoyed or whatever. Cause I'm a human being, right. And it's like, it's nobody's fault. It's just like, Oh, I got to take responsibility for, my level of engagement. And, you know, I think, again, even as it relates to some issues and some structural foundational sort of cultural issues around gender, and as we look at how do we make the the work environment more inclusive, there's obviously some, uh, some many things in the way of that, so to speak, and we've made progress. But I also think it's it's a combination of changing the structure and the system, but also changing our mindset for how we approach it. Right. And so like, so here's the question I have with this, like 32%. And recently, Melinda Gates said that corporate America is turning all of us into workaholics. Yeah. And that, that's just like happening. And yeah. there, you, I know that you work with a lot of these, let's call them like destination companies, right? Yeah. Google, you know, yeah. HP is another one, like, mm-hmm. you know, companies that college you know, graduates like just fantasize about working for, right? right? And so they get in and they're there and they're, you know, or people who are like switching jobs. Maybe they, they're they working for smaller companies and they make it to Google and they're, or, yeah. you know, not to point, I'm not like saying, you know, every everything's Google, but, right. you know, th- they get to these destination type companies and they end up working 15 hours, you know, a week. And then they're, you know, they feel yeah. like they're like compartmentalizing themselves. This is my, I'm working yep. here so that I can have a life. What's that saying? Like, you know, live to work versus work to live. And, right. um, and so I just, you know, wonder what, how, well, how does authenticity break? Th- well, how is that the big disruptor of that? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things about that. I mean, I do think I see a lot of workaholism, workaholism across the board. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, I, I've had to check myself about this over the years, too, because I think one of the things, you know, we get, look, workaholism in our culture, whether you work at Google or at HP or you work, you know, for a nonprofit or you work for a government agency or you work for a small business or any other company, um, and if you work for yourself and have your own business, workaholism gets celebrated in our culture still. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think about in, you know, I live in the, in the San Francisco Silicon Valley area and it's like the, in the tech world, people, I mean, there's all these stories. Oh, we started and like nobody slept and nobody ate and it was, uh, you know, and then we all, you know, it's like, really? That sounds terrible for everybody, like just on a basic human well-being level. So I think we have to all take a look at part of what I think is driving some of the workaholism is just technology and the way that we work, right? I mean, I both love and hate my iPhone at the same time Mm -hmm. because it's like always there. It's always on. There's always work to do and all kinds of other things that could distract me. Um, And the expectation now, especially in inside of companies, these global companies, technology and otherwise, is people are working around the clock Mm -hmm. 
And because we have all this technology and all these devices, um, there are people that will work and work all the time. And again, a lot of times what I see is like the leaders inside of companies dictate just within the team. They dictate a lot of sort of the working habits of the people around them, so to speak. And, and one of the things that, again, where, where I see this sometimes circle back around even to some gender differences you know, there's there's the challenge that we have in in the corporate world, if you will, of lack of opportunity for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also the challenge. I remember actually sitting with a friend of mine who is a client, one of the companies I work with, having lunch with her, and she had just come back from maternity leave. She had her second child, and I was asking her what it was like to be back, and she was talking about some of the challenge of like, you know, I missed working, but now I miss the baby, and it's like, you know, that piece, which of course we have two girls at my house, but it was different for me as a man in that dynamic and I wasn't going back to work in a corporate job. I have my own business. So as we navigated that, our girls are 12 and nine now. But then I was asking her about where she was at and did she like the role she was in? And she said she did. And sort of, you know, we just started talking about kind of what's next. And she was talking about her boss and then her boss's boss. And I was like, would you want your boss's job or your boss's boss's job, so to speak? And she was like, definitely not my boss's boss's job. And I said, why? And she's like, because I don't want to work that much. And I said, what do you mean? And she's like, well, I mean, if I had that job, like I would never see my kids. And it was so interesting because I said to her, my response to her was, you know, that's so interesting because if I were sitting here talking to a man, it's not that he, there's no man on the planet that would say the same thing you just said, but that's probably not what would have come out of his mouth. Even in today's world, in the way, right? It would be just like, oh yeah, I want, I'm going to get that next job. And the one, you know what I mean? So we were having this whole conversation about, you know, and she was sharing some things with me that it made me realize even at a deeper level the layers to this for us run really deep. And it's not simply just oh, men are this way and women are this way. It's not, right? Because our age and our focus and our industry and do we have children or not and what's important to all these different factors play. But I think for women, there's just a number of issues that get layered on top as it relates to our careers mm-hmm. that as men, we don't necessarily have to or aren't expected to factor in in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And I so and I I love that you're kind of bringing in the woman quotient here, because I do think the opportunity for promoting authenticity to make it a real cultural shift lay in this research right now that shows that companies that do promote women and companies that have more women on boards and in the higher in the C-suite and in the VP, you know, director levels, those are the companies that are thriving. Those are the companies that are making a bigger bottom line. And so when we work with corporations, right, we and we're working with women, we're telling the women that it's time now for them to bring their authentic voice to the table and not say, I don't want that job, but to say, you know what? Here's what it's going to take. You want, you know, because they're in demand. We are in demand and we are in a very unique and timely position right now to speak up and to speak our truth and to be real about what, you know, to let go of shame around or, you know, around the stigma of like being a mom and, oh, I'm less valuable and all that. Just be true about your experience and watch a new paradigm get created from that. Absolutely. I mean, you're right, because I think the next level of authenticity, even thinking of that conversation, this was a number of years ago when I was having lunch 
with that woman. But right, if if there was a place, and this is not a judgment of her at all. I totally heard where she was coming from, and I got it. Sure. And given the paradigm and the structure at which she was talking about it, it's like, okay, her choice is like, I'm not even going to go for that job. But what would it be like for her to be able to say, you know what? I absolutely want that job. I deserve that job. I'd be great in that job. And you know what? We got to change the expectation of how that's going to work so that not only I can do that, but mm-hmm. so that it works all the way around. And one of the things that I've seen, and there's a ton of research, as you know, and I'm sure you teach, but just even anecdotally, when there are more women in senior leadership positions or on any team that I work with, it's again, we go back to even masculine feminine energy, right? It's not that all women are you know, inherently super feminine and all men are inherently super masculine, but the traits of masculinity and femininity you know, there are more feminine energy, if you will, feminine traits around collaboration, around understanding, around creativity, around connection, around sure. empathy, and all yeah. of these things. That's like we need those as human beings, male or female. And when teams don't have that, right, when, they're, when we're making decisions about business and what's going to do this and we have to focus, of course, on the numbers and what the data shows us and what the, how's it going to impact the bottom line. But in terms of really factoring in what's the human cost and impact of the decisions that we're going to make, both on our employees and then depending on the business that we're in, you know, our customers and, our, and the people that we serve and all of that, that what I often see is that women are much better at paying attention to those things and talking about those things and thinking about those things and understanding those things intuitively that, that when that's missing in the conversation, either because there's not enough women in the room or the women in the room don't feel safe or empowered to speak up. Mm-hmm. But, and, and this is more recently, Chantal, one of the things I'm super passionate about is mm-hmm. talking to men about this and really challenging yeah. other men. Like, look, we have to pay attention to this, not in a condescending mansplaining kind of way, right. but in the like, hey, you know what? The game is rigged in a lot of ways and we have to make it a little e- evener and fairer and safer and like encourage Right. Someone said something to me a couple months ago that I never forgot. He said, Mike, notice when you go out and speak, when you open up for questions, notice that almost always the first question will come from a straight white man. And I was like, no, that's not true. And I've been paying attention now as I'm traveling around the country speaking. I swear to God, Chantal, it happens almost every time. Oh, my God. No way. And I'm like, totally. and again, it's not it's not like an arrogant thing, but it's just this entitled like I deserve to ask a question. I'm going to raise my hand and ask a question. And then it's like. What, you know, and this is not to you know bash straight white men, but it's like, oh yeah, I guess that's just a you know entitled expectation of things, or you know, like the the study that shows that like when women go and advocate for someone else to get a raise, it's seen very positively, but when they advocate for themselves to get a raise, it's seen as very negatively. Whereas a man goes and does advocates for himself to get a raise or a promotion, mm-hmm. more often than not, even if he doesn't get it, it's like, well, you know. Jim's really a go-getter. He's really, you know, advocating for it. That's great. You know what I mean? It's like, wait a minute. That's not fair. Like, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. the same action. There's two sets of rules. we got to do something about that or at least pay more attention to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love that. I know that, um, once again, I'm bringing up Google. I don't know what the problem is. But anyway, they had a really <laughs> great they had a really great study around their high-performance teams. Yeah. And I love this. And they, and they, you know, they were interviewing all the people that were on what they considered their highest-performing teams. And the, and the one consistent thread throughout all the teams was that there was a feeling of safety that yeah. anybody on the team – could speak up and be wrong and right. have an idea that fails and it didn't matter. They felt safe to speak up and give their voice. And those were the most, you know, highest performing teams in the yeah. company. So that's like, you know, that it's huge. Well, in that yeah. study, you know, they called it project Aristotle, right? And they spent three years studying first. They started just looking at teams at Google, but they expanded it out to really look at different industries and different 
companies in all across the world and look at all this data and that you know that those components for high performance that number one component that you're talking about psychological safety is so important and you know as we're talking specifically and Ben talking here about Google and before you and I even hit record we were talking about Erica Fox who yeah. I write about in Bring Your Whole Self to Work and Erica works and has for a number of years at Google in learning and development and a story that she shared with me a number of years ago when I came and did a session with her and her team or some of the people on her team afterwards she she decided to take on a practice because one of the things I talk about is I talk a lot about appreciation and authenticity and these different things but I say often to people like come up with activities or practices for yourself personally or for your team that will fit with yours. Like I give people suggestions, but I'm always like, look, you have to sort of customize these. And yeah. one of the questions, one of the challenges Erica was having at the time, she was working remotely in Connecticut and running a team in the U.S. and some people elsewhere, but they were virtual. So they write, how do you engage with a virtual team? And this is true for entrepreneurs and for all of us doing business in today's world. So she said after the workshop, she was really inspired that she wanted to have her team focus more on some things they were grateful for. So she got on the very first sort of Google Hangout, you know, video call they did with their team. And she goes, okay, everybody, take out a Post-it note and write down something that you're grateful for on the Post-it note. And then I want everybody to share what's on the Post-it note with, you know, right now. And then after the meeting, take the Post-it note and like hide it somewhere in your office or your desk or somewhere. And then, so you'll find it later. And, and you know, people, people were kind of rolling their eyes and thinking it was kind of corny, but they all did it. And then she said, we did it the next week. And we did it, you know, third week and, and, you know, some people were more into it than others. But after the third week, I kind of thought, yeah, maybe this, you know, I'll, I'll, I won't do it or I'll try something else or whatever. She's like, we get on the Google Hangout video thing and like we start jumping into the meeting and people are like, wait a minute, what about the grateful thing and the post-it note? And I got my post-its and she was like, well, they were really into it. And she's like, so it turned into this little practice. And she said what she found was it just this little couple minutes at the beginning of their video conference meetings allowed them to share something a little more personal, mm -hmm. a little more human, something. It could be, you know, my, my son scored a goal in a soccer game or my, you know, my friend did this or we went here on the weekend or this thing happened at work or whatever it was. It just mm -hmm. was like, but what she said was in addition to that, she started to feel like it created more psychological safety and connection. And she said out of them feeling like they could share what they were grateful for, it actually gave them more space to share some of the things that they were struggling with. And even when they had made some mistakes or there were failures. And she said they actually quarterly started to come up with this thing. I think they called it the, like, the fantastic flop award. Like what was the biggest thing that somebody screwed up over the quarter and they would give someone an award, an award. And it became this kind of funny thing. But what she talked about when she shared all this with me and I, and I put this in the book was it created more psychological safety. Mm -hmm. And so at some level, whatever kind of work we do, whether we work for ourselves, whether we work for a big, huge company, whether we work in a place that inherently feels like it's pretty safe or not, everyone who's listening to us right now and who's part of this community, Chantal, and this movement that you have created in your team is like, we're all part of, I think, the positive change, the solution, if you will. We got to bring our whole selves and show up in that yeah. way to influence the environment, even and especially if it feels scary. Yeah, and that, you know, what I love about, you know, what what you started out with that, yes, there's, you know, corporations need to change, but we actually also need to speak up and yes. especially for for women, but also for everybody, there's covering and hiding going yes. on with everybody, men and women. And the more yep. that we speak up, the more that we can recognize that we actually make up these companies and that yes. we can create what we want. And if we're not authentic and we're not speaking up for our own authenticity, if we're not 
advocating for creating a, a place where we can be, you know, like you say, bring our whole self to work, it's yeah. never going to happen. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things, look, I mean, I, I always think there's so many paradoxes in this. And look, I mean, here we are. I, I realize I'm the first man on your podcast, <laughs> you know, but yeah. I'm, but I'm a, you know, a man having conversations where, where, you know, we're talking about things related to gender. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things for a lot of my life, you know, so I grew up, my parents split up when I was three and my mom never got remarried. So she raised me and my older sister, Lori, as a single mom. And I grew up in Oakland and we didn't have a lot of money, Oakland, California, in the Bay Area, you know, went to inner city schools. By the time I was in high school, I was in public high school in Oakland, you know, played sports, was a baseball player, was my main sport, but I also played basketball. I was the only white kid on the, not only on the, on the team, I was the only white kid in the entire league. Wow. Every other every other player on every other team in the entire Oakland Athletic League basketball league was African American, and then there was me. And yeah, I just share that for in context because like I grew up in this way, and I didn't really. I mean, I was aware of it in many ways, but I was sort of unaware how different of an experience I was having until I went to college. I went to Stanford, and I literally went to Stanford and was like, "Oh, this is mm-hmm. what." America is more like, in a sense, you know what I mean? Like people would ask me, what's it like at Stanford when I'd call home freshman year and my friends from high school, I'd say, well, I've never been around this many white people in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was, but I realized like, oh, like, and at Stanford, you know, in the early nineties when I was there, it was like, you know, the white man was sort of king. And it was just this paradigm for me that even though here I was this straight white young man in this university environment, I felt a little out of place and I didn't quite fit and understand it. But I share all that because all these years later, I've shied away in my work from talking overtly about race and about gender, mostly because I thought for a long time, like, who really wants to hear a straight white guy talk about right? race and talk I about gender? Yeah. You know I mean, like, I, it's like, important. I don't want, I'm gonna, what you're saying I'm is gonna, important. Yeah. I, I'm going to say something wrong. I'm going to offend somebody. Right. I'm going to inadvertently. And you know what? It's not really my place because there's people, women obviously know what it's like to be women and and they're going to talk about gender and people of color and and people who are gay or lesbian or transgender, they'll, they know about that experience. So I'm going to let them speak about that experience. I'm going to try to be as best of an advocate as I can yeah. and be supportive, but like stay out of it because it's not really my place. Over the last couple of years, I have realized that a lot of that for me was a story. It was what it, it's, it's, the, it's the definition of privilege, right? I don't have to talk about these things or think about these things because they don't relate to me. And I've now realized in my own life, and I think this is true across the business world, but just in our culture, like I think it's important for all of us to speak up and lean in, and especially people like me, because again, the more men are willing and able and open to listening and actually engaging and understanding and talking about these things and advocating in different ways, I think it's going to really make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And I so appreciate you touching on that, Mike, because it's so easy um, to write people off, so to speak, yeah. like on certain conversations, because you haven't been, you don't fall into the underrepresented group. And, right. but you, you, you know, you had that personal experience and you're in it. I mean, you you're in all these companies, you see what's going on. And I think yeah. that we need all voices, you know, from yeah. all sides to be advocates. And one of the things that I think is a real big opportunity when we talk about, you know, corporation, okay, we're telling everybody, speak up, speak up. But sometimes, you know, it isn't safe. 
right? No. Not a, not everything's progressive and groovy groovy no. like it's at Google, right? You've got yeah. other companies that are, you know, struggling and they have an old, old paradigm and they're trying yeah. to outcreate it. But one of the things that, you know, when, when we bring it back to this concept of like this company is a destination and, you know, right. um, that it's what if the workplace was actually not just a destination to develop your career, but actually a destination for personal development and yeah. personal transformation? And people were looking and saying, OK, what you know, how am I going to grow personally? at right. this company. And I think that's what you're saying here. This book is saying like, you know, the companies that actually provide this kind of environment are the companies that are going to be thriving in the future. Absolutely. And you know, I think, look, I think Silicon Valley has been a bit of a leader in this, but it's not exclusive to the Valley. I do think that a lot, look, a lot of the, the research that we see about, you know, millennials in the workplace and sort of what decisions are being made or jobs that they change or companies they want to work for and all these things, you know, it's on the surface, it's like, oh, they just want to go where the company takes care of them. And, you know, they have free this and free that and they get flexible hours. And there is some of that. But at a deeper level, it's where can I learn? Where can I grow mm -hmm. both in my career, but also personally? Mm -hmm. You know, I talked to there's a friend of mine, Melissa Daimler, who um, worked at Adobe for years and then ran learning and development at Twitter for a few years and was just most recently working at WeWork. But when I interviewed her on my podcast and we were talking about, I started my podcast a couple of years back and had you on, right? And we yeah. were, yeah, that was fun. But a lot of the, the context of a lot of the interviews I've done on my podcast are around as I was working on and really researching for this new book, Bring Your Whole Self to Work. It was, I wanted to hear other people's stories mm -hmm. and really listen about their own experience. And, you know, Melissa is somebody who's been in the field of sort of learning and development for almost 20 years now. And she said, you know, her passion and why she loves it so much. She was a coach in her twenties actually, and then went into the corporate world as she was moving along in her career. And then has been in the corporate world for all these years. She said, I really think work can be a place where we grow and develop, not just so we can be more successful, but as human beings. Yeah. And I do think that that's a progressive idea, but the reality is a lot of companies, even more conservative companies that don't fully embrace that. What they realize now is if we're going to attract and keep good talent, if we're going to have people be as effective as possible at work, we have to offer them programs where they can learn and they can grow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look for, I mean, knock on wood, the economy for the most part in most industries has been pretty good for the last number of years. So, you know, from that standpoint, workers have more flexibility mm -hmm. and people feel more empowered to change jobs or to leave a company and start their own business. And like, you know, the reality of the way the economy goes, it's cyclical. You know, a decade ago, after the financial meltdown, people were in a very different place, mm -hmm. you know, so these things do change. But I think the companies that really get it, and that's why part of what I was really focused on in the book is how do we bring our whole selves to work as individuals, but also what can we do to create that kind of environment mm -hmm. where people feel safe enough? And this is back to the issue and conversation around gender. This is where I think a lot of men need to understand more deeply what's it actually like. Like I'll give you an example, and maybe you and I talked about this before, but this is more on a personal level. But Michelle, my wife and I were at a workshop about a year and a half ago, and the woman who was leading the workshop asked all the men in the room, and it was actually a couple's thing, so she, you know, it was about half and half, um, and she said to all the men, when was the last time you felt physically unsafe? She said, was it with 10 years ago, five years ago, a year ago, you know, six months ago? And we're like raising our hands at different times. And she asked all the women the same question. 
10 years ago, five years ago, a year ago, six months ago, three months ago, last month, you know, within the last 24 hours, she finally gets down to 80% of the hands of the women in the room when I'm including my wife sitting right next to me. Mm, And uh, most, most of the men in the room, we were all like looking at each other and at all the women like, what, when, what, 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 yeah, what? And the woman leading the workshop said, listen, this is one of the many fundamental differences between what it's like to walk through the world as a man and as a woman. Mm -hmm. And we never talk about it. And she's like, for most women, it's not even a thing. Like she's like, we've just incorporated. Like I know where my car is. I know where I'm walking. I know what time it is. I know who's in the room. I know where I have to go. I know, you know, where my keys, all these things vigilantly that women do just to make sure that they're physically safe as best as possible. Whereas I never think about those things right? for the most part. Right. Mm-hmm. And she was saying, and again, I think about that. So again, at work, it's not necessarily, I don't know mm-hmm. that the women are walking around the office, like feeling literally physically unsafe, but just again, it's like, whoa, how yeah. many of us men are not paying attention to a basic fundamental difference of what's that like for you right. or how is this or how's the work environment or how's whatever yeah. or, or not only like like how is it for you, but what else could we do that might be different and so that we can create that kind of openness in that environment where people feel like their voice can be heard in the same way. Yeah. Hello, lovely listeners. I want to pause for a moment here to make sure that you know how you can get even more access to this type of inspiration and support. Emerging Women has its own membership community where you get teachings from incredible female leaders and coaching support directly from me, as well as other brilliant members within the Emerging Women tribe every month. If you are ready to go deeper into your own leadership and emerging journey, head over to EmergingWomen.com for a free trial of our membership community. We've truly designed it as a hub for women like you who want to create change in the world. Don't go it alone, sisters. Head over to EmergingWomen.com forward slash membership and start your free trial today. Now, let's get back to our conversation. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, that's just fascinating. And the fact that we're, you know, navigating that, first of all, just as a woman, like, I, I, I think it's so great for men to be awake, awake to this too. But like, I'm still taking that in. And I'm thinking about like, how much, what's the tax on that? You know, I know that um, there's this woman, Vivian Meng, who talks about the tax of you know, being any kind of under, you know, a member of any kind of underrepresented group, LBGTQ yeah. women, all that. And like, you know, the, the, the amount of effort that we have to put in both internally from a psychological, you know, um, yeah. perspective, but also just physically to mitigate that and to navigate that. It's, you know, we, ha- it's like having dyslexia, right? When you, when you have dyslexia, yeah. my son has dyslexia, you know, he has to put four times as much effort in to like, yeah. you know, be at the same level. And it's just something to, you know, be reminded of. Well, and I think, uh, and I think what's important about that is understanding that, like me hearing you say that I can, I can imagine and understand that. Of course, I don't know what the experience is like to be female, of course. But one of the things though, again, I just think as I was saying, I think of my own experience growing up as a kid in my house, um, my mom was really, really strong and dominant. Um, she also happened to be very angry with my father who had left and right. So there was yeah. this sense of like, I actually felt this 
intuitive but also explicit sense that like men can do harm and aren't necessarily always all that good. So there was this like, okay, I don't want to be like that. Yeah. Um, and the way that my mother looked at the world, she was very strong feminist um, and, and my sister. But then even in being in school and as I moved along socially, the environment that I grew up in, predominantly African-American culture, both sports and just in school in general. So having that experience of feeling like I was the other and I was outside and I wasn't yeah. part of the sort of dominant, again, I now look back and go, oh, you know, again, I'm not trying to sound like some holier than thou, like, oh, I'm a really aware straight white man. I know what it's like. But at some level, I had a significant amount of experience, not just like, oh, I'm at an event and like, I'm the only man here. or I'm the only white person here. Like every white man probably has at least one story where that happened in a moment. But this was like extended period of time, like my social structure, the environment that I was in, you know, so I do at some some level know what it's like to like, oh, how do I try to fit in here when it's not necessarily me and I got to try harder and I want to be accepted, but I'm not really part of the dominant culture. And you know what I mean? Like, so, and, and I think what's hard is people who find themselves in that dominant culture most of the time don't think about it. Like sometimes when I'm in working with a team and I point out the fact, or I'm in it just at an event or at the seminar, it's a workshop and there's 50 people in the room and I'll look around and go, wow, you know, there's 48 men and two women in this room. And of course, both of the women are keenly aware of that most of the men look up and go oh yeah wow i guess i didn't realize there's hardly any women here you know what i mean mm-hmm. it's like just just not thinking about it or again walk into a room and like you know 47 out of 50 people are white and it's like most of the white people don't necessarily know that and that's not inherently bad it doesn't mean they're racist but it's just like whoa imagine what it would be like my, my we had a woman who was staying with us for a little while as a friend of a friend and she's from mexico and she went to go do a workshop in San Francisco and she came back from the workshop and I said, I asked her about, you know, was there anybody else who spoke Spanish there or was from Mexico? She said one person and Rosie, our now nine year old, this was about a year ago says, well, how, how do you know that? She was saying this to Claudia and I said, well, Rosie, imagine if you were in a workshop in Mexico and everybody was from Mexico and everybody spoke Spanish and you went there, but you know, you could speak Spanish, but it's, you're you. And there was one other person there who looked a little like you and was from the U S and spoke English. Like, don't you think you'd probably recognize that person and notice them and probably go talk to them? And she was like, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. And Claudia was like, yeah. So I just, I knew this, I saw this other woman. I went over and said hello to her and we started talking Spanish and you know, but it's like that. How do we bring that sense of awareness, not from a politically correct perspective, but just from a real world inclusive, like how we can all learn from each other and really utilize all the strengths and talents that we have. Totally. I love that example. And yes. And gosh, I hear the call, Mike. We're going to do this. <laughs> the re-evolution. We're, it's just it's so exciting. And that's why yeah. instead of feeling like, God, doesn't it suck? The corporate world. I'm so over it. Let's become entrepreneurs. And there's a whole other set of yeah. stretches on that side, especially if you're a woman and you're trying to get funding and you've got sure. kids and all that stuff. So, yep. you know, where are the places of power and how can we turn those places in, of power into like wonderful places for human expression? Yes. Right. And um, and that's what I, I, I love. I know you're on that track, too. Yeah. That's what I love. Well, about I this say, book. On that, let me just say one thing that I, I, I don't always look at it as an either or because I do think, look, people who are on the entrepreneurial path looking yeah. to get funded. And, and look, you know way better than I do. And I've seen this and been actually really grateful to you and inspired. Like when I was at 
both of the times I came to your event in San Francisco, like listening to a lot of the women that got up to share their stories and talk about what it's like, it just, again, it opened my mind even more to like, wow, there's so much opportunity. There's a challenge clearly, but there's so much opportunity for women in the business world and starting their own businesses in the venture capital world, right? And also in the corporate world. And from the standpoint of, if we look at it more from, how can I be of the greatest service and what really lights me up? Because I think what happens sometimes, and I think actually, I from the outside looking in, I sometimes worry that women spend a lot of time judging each other and themselves so harshly. It's even just, you and I probably had this conversation before, even with motherhood. Michelle, my wife and I have had this conversation for a long time. Yeah. As we have kids, right? It's the, the women who work versus the women who don't work. You know, the women who then go work at a corporate job versus the women who start their own businesses. It's sort of this like, well, who's better? Well, who's got it harder? Well, who's working harder? Well, who's doing this? And at the end of the day, it's like, what? I don't understand. I mean, like at a human level, I get it. But like, why are we having this argument instead of figuring out how we can all just empower mm-hmm. each other and mm-hmm. be grateful and inspired? Like if a woman chooses to stay home with her children and that's what she chooses to do, like you go mm-hmm. be as authentic and impassioned about that and like fantastic. And if a woman chooses to go work at, you know, some company and she works, you know, 12 hours a day, if like that's what lights you up, go do that. And if you want to go start your own business and do your own thing or you want to have a coaching practice so you have a flexible schedule and you can, you know, or you choose not to have children or whatever. I mean, again, it's not that men don't judge each other. We definitely do. We judge and compete all the time. But I sometimes think in a way, God, the rules are so much clearer as a man. And, yeah, you, you know, know, and I almost think like this judgy thing, I'm at the point now where I just feel like women are too exhausted even to judge each other. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know yes. what I mean? Like, I'm just too tired. It. You yeah. know? Like, <laughs> you know? Like, everyone's just, it's just like, it's like the great equalizer. But, you know, we're all I'm just doing the best we can, right? Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Well, the one of the, I want to move on through the book a yeah. little bit. I think we've spent a lot of time on, on the authenticity piece because yeah. I just, I feel like that's the core to everything it here. Is. I want to touch on you've got you you make a distinction in your book between appreciation and recognition. Yes. Tell me about that. So recognition is positive feedback based on performance, based on results. Appreciation is about recognizing people's value. It's about who they are. Recognition's more about what they do. And this is really important particularly in business. Mm. I see this in teams you know, because again, and they're both important, but what happens a lot of times is we, we lump them together and therefore, you know, again, recognition, you got to earn it. It's, it's finite. It's, it's scarce by nature. Mm. Um, you know, and, and, and the, 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 what I often talk about is what happens when there's not something to recognize, right? Again, individually mm-hmm. or collectively, we, we don't, we don't produce the result. We don't get the funding we want. We don't, you know, have the numbers. We, I mean, and that's frustrating for everybody, mm-hmm. but and, and as a former athlete, I know that experience, like we lost the game. Does that mean like everybody sucks and there's nothing to say or do? No, not at all. But we have to separate it out and realize that what people, what most of us really want, of course, we want to succeed and accomplish whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times what we want more, more than anything is to really be valued. You know, I heard Oprah speak a few years ago and she said this really great thing. She said, you know, I've interviewed thousands and thousands of people. I've interviewed everybody, right? Presidents, prime ministers, celebrities, you know, Mm -hmm. kids, you know, people gone through tragedies, criminals, I mean, every type of person. She said, after almost every interview I've ever conducted over all these years, she said, almost everybody asks me some version of the same question when the interview's over. Camera shuts off, they lean over and they say, 
how'd I do? Or was that okay? Aww. Some version of that. And she said, you know, it was really confusing to me early in my career, she said, because I'd be sitting across from someone who's very successful and accomplished, and I'd be wondering, like, are they really that insecure? Like, do they really need my validation? Why are they asking me how they did? And then she said, then I realized something. They're not actually asking me how they did. She said, you know what they're really asking me? Did you see me? Did you hear me? Mm. Did what I say matter? Mm -hmm. And she said, and I agree with her, everybody's asking those questions. Mm. And, and one of the things I actually think intuitively, you know, again, this is a generalization, but I think women get this way better and easier than men do. That it mm -hmm. really is like there's a distinction between our performance, which is important, and who we are as people. And that the relationships are so important. And if we build the relationships with each other mm -hmm. in a genuine and authentic way, our ability to perform well together is exponentially increased. And when the relationships suffer, right, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then it makes it harder. I, I think you and I even talked about this when you were on my podcast, but my old baseball coach from high school stopped coaching for a few years when his kids were born. He had two sons and this was many years ago. And then I graduated high school and then he, when he said he wanted to coach again, because coaching takes a lot of time, the baseball job was taken. So he then, the job that was open that he could have to coach was for the girls basketball team at the high school. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. And he said, okay, I'll do, I'll take the job. And he'd never coached girls before. And he said, I said to him, what's the difference? Um, you know, between coaching boys and girls. He said, it's actually not that different. He said, the, I, I thought it would be way different. It's not. He's like, the girls are they're really tough. They're really into it. They get in the game. I, I, I'm loving it. He said, the one difference that I did notice, though, is when they get upset with each other, they don't want to play together. I said, what do you mean? He, like, he said, like, if, if, if two of the girls are in a fight about a boy or something happened or whatever, there's some conflict and it's unresolved, they literally won't pass each other the ball. And I'll be like, time out. And call. What's going on? Well, I'm, I'm not passing to her. What do you mean? He's like, I, like, he's like coaching boys all these years. The boys could like beat each other up in the locker room. But when the game was time for the game, they'd like do whatever to win. Whereas the girls yeah. are like, I don't like her. I don't want to play with her. And at some level, when he said that, I was like, wow, that's so interesting. And, and again, you could look at it in a really weird context. But I look at that more and like I think intuitively what women understand and what I really appreciate and, and value myself is that the relationships that exist amongst us and between us one-on-one -on -one and collectively, if that psychological safety, right? If that's not there, yeah. we are not going to play well together. Mm -hmm. And so that's why appreciation is so important. Think about this just in your own life. Think of the people that you will take feedback from. You may not always like it. You may not always agree with it. We all take feedback from people who we already know appreciate us. That's why we take their feedback. Right. Because right. I could get the same piece of feedback from two people. And if in one case, I know they care about me. I know they value me. I know they appreciate me. I know they got, they got my back. I'll take their feedback. Another person, if I either don't know that, or maybe we have some weird unresolved conflict sure. or some unhealthy competition, I'm not taking their feedback, even if it's really valuable. You don't trust not, it. Yeah. No. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't know why it's coming. I'm defensive, mm -hmm. all those things. So, Appreciation is probably the most important ingredient, I think, of, of teams that really gel and have that, as we call in sports, chemistry, where they work well together. Right. Well, I, I think it also speaks to that example you gave with Oprah, that people just want to be seen. And it seems to me, as you're talking and in the book, that appreciation is, is also just like seeing somebody. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's fabulous. 
Yeah, I love that distinction. And I, that, you know, I learned something. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also, it drives, look, I did, I found some, some interesting data when I was researching for Bring Your Whole Self to Work. Uh, I looked at some, some research from glassdoor.com and they found that 52% of people said I would have stayed at my company longer if I felt more valued and appreciated, particularly by my boss or my manager. And 81% of people said they were more motivated to work harder when they were appreciated versus 37% said I'm more motivated to work harder when my boss is hard on me or I'm is basically threatening that I might lose my job. Right. And that just to me speaks to the way that we operate in today's world is much more oriented towards, it's not about like everyone has to be nice and happy all the time as much as like you can't belittle people. You can't be condescending and intimidate people in the way. I mean, that was a style and still is to some degree, although it's more outdated of leadership, of management, of how you sort of kept people in line and got people to work hard. It just doesn't work anymore. And again, mm-hmm. to what we were talking about earlier, for better or worse, I mean, there's a lot of issues we have in the world today with respect to work and the environment, but like we're more empowered and emboldened right now to say, you know what, I'm going to leave and go somewhere else because there's other opportunities. Or you know yeah. what, I'll start my own thing. I can do something on the internet or with a group of people or virtually. I'm not, I don't have to go have a J-O-B, so to speak, um, in order to survive, which right. I think is actually a good thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, I mean, it's just, it's all about people right yeah. now. I mean, it's talent and and that's another source of demand. That's an opportunity for we, the people, to yeah. put pressure on the system and to demand a place where we can grow. Yeah, I think it's it's just an awesome time for all of this. I'm going to switch because we're running out of time, but I cannot finish this podcast without talking about your emotional intelligence section. Yeah. And this is a real hot spot with the women that we work with, yeah. especially in tech, where women yeah. are particularly isolated, but really all over. And, um, you know, we'll have like, women that are PhDs in engineering, incredibly smart. And when it comes to having tricky, difficult conversations, we hear over and over again, like, oh, you know, whenever I'm having a difficult conversation, I feel like I'm going to cry. And and yeah. so it, I shut down and I'm not able to be authentic because my emotions are taking over. How do you navigate that? And I'm curious to hear what you have to say yeah. about that. Specifically, you know, when I know we're keep talking about gender, I know this stuff applies to people across the board, both genders yeah. and everybody in between. But this is a real thing that we hear. So, yeah, well, and it's big. You know, it's, it's so yeah. interesting. I, I literally just was doing an interview earlier today and I was, it was a man who was talking to me and, and we were, he was asking me like, is it really okay to cry at work? Right. And the context in which he was even asking me the question, um, was interesting. And, and I, I said to him, you know, here's what I've seen in my own life is with respect to being emotional or, or being in touch with our emotions, right? For many of us as men, we've been trained and raised like boys don't cry. Mm-hmm. So suck it up, be a man. Like, look, I know you have boys at your house, and I'm sure as many conscious parents are doing the best they can not to raise their boys that way today. However, the culture still kind of does that to our boys anyhow, even <sighs> if we don't do it at home. Totally. And depending on our age, you know, and I'm in my mid-40s now, so particularly men who are older than me, but particularly men my age and even those that are younger, we were all raised and trained in some version of that. Whereas women are raised differently, obviously, and generationally it can change. But as it relates to the working world, the professional world, there's been a both overt and covert message given to most women, don't be too emotional. Yeah. Don't cry. Like you gotta keep it together because people won't take you seriously. Mm-hmm. Right? 
Yeah. And I hear this from women a lot in my own work. And so what I say to that is like, look, I don't really know exactly. I mean, I've always been a pretty emotional person myself. Mm-hmm. And it's been an interesting journey to navigate as a, as a boy and then as a teenager and then as a man. Because if you're emotional and you're male, you not only deal with the challenge of being emotional, you then get picked on and made fun of by the right. other boys and the other men, which is another piece to it. That said, like, I could never quite figure out how to keep my emotions in check and, like, not cry or not get emotional when things were emotional for me. Um, And I know that it can be hard, but one of the things that I have seen is the more willing we are to do our own inner work, whatever that means, right? Like, people listening to us have their own version of that. But getting a little bit emotional in a difficult conversation, even having some tears show up, as sometimes difficult as that can be or scary or vulnerable as that can be, it is not a deal breaker as long as we're willing to actually allow ourselves to kind of move through that, if you will. Do you know what I mean? A lot of times what I see will happen is in the meeting, something will come up, someone, and maybe it's a woman, starts to get emotional, and then she starts fighting with herself, literally. Like I watch her face, and I'm like, oh, my God, she's about to melt down, not because she's crying, but because she's trying to not cry. Well, oh, I've personally had that experience. Yeah. Personally. And, and so it's like, yeah. and again, and I don't mean to, again, I don't mean to mansplain this or oversimplify, but it's like, okay, so if the feeling comes up, like with any emotion, if we actually allow ourselves to feel it, it tends to move through. But it would be like if I jumped out at you, I was standing behind a door and I jumped out and scared you. Is there a way to control yourself from not going, ah, no, because like it's a reaction. It's a, it's a nervous system reaction. Like you get scared. And so the thing about it is emotional intelligence is about self-awareness and self-management. And it's also about social awareness and relationship management. Like I remember seeing a woman, a really strong, powerful leader who was in a meeting and we were having this really intense, vulnerable conversation with the team. And she said, as she started talking about this thing, she said, look, when I talk about stuff like this, sometimes I get emotional and I start to cry. It's, it's not a problem. I really want to talk about this thing. And she started talking and she started to have some tears, but it was like, she just kept going through it. And like, nobody reacted to the tears and freaked out like it was a thing. Cause she actually just said something about it. I love that. I love that. And I think, you know, and I know in your book around this topic, you're very strong on mindfulness, but it's, it's not only just having the self-awareness, but it's being vulnerable enough to share that, Hey, this is going to happen. (laughs) This is, you know, the way we coach women also is just be upfront about it. And Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, like it doesn't grip you as much. Right. Well, cause then what happens is the whole, this is what always, like I see this. So there's an exercise that I love to do with groups that I learned from some mentors of mine years ago. But this exercise that I do with teams and sometimes I'll do it with bigger groups, too. But it's like, you know, it's a lowering the waterline on the iceberg exercise. It's a let's get real and vulnerable exercise. And I'll love to do it like with a team, a team of 10 or 12 leaders. And it's like and I always start and say, everyone's going to have about two minutes and you're just going to repeat this phrase. If you really knew me, you'd know this about me. Yeah. Right. And some people roll their eyes and they think it's whatever. But and I say, you know, I often set up like it might some emotion might come out. It's totally fine. There's no right or wrong way. You don't have to say anything you don't want to. But I invite people, challenge people to be vulnerable. And I always start with whatever's real for me in the moment as a way to kind of model it, but to set the environment that it's safe. And as we go around, inevitably, what often happens is tears definitely show up from, by the way, both men and women in this exercise, not just women, but I've seen it more often than not when a woman in the group starts to get emotional, she'll immediately start to apologize for the tears. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. And, and my response, and I always try to as much love as I can possibly, I'm not, it's like, I'll say, it's okay. It's okay. And then I'll even look sometimes like right in the person's eyes, say, you don't have to apologize to me or to any of us for being human. 
because that's like to me it's an honor if someone's willing to share their tears and their emotions it's now every now and again there are people in life who can do that as a manipulation that's way 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 the exception and not the rule when right but the thing that i notice and i get it at some level i also have empathy for the fact that i'm sure that woman has been shamed in her life or been given critical feedback like keep it together what are you doing don't do that by whomever so that there's fear around it. So it's not only whatever she's sharing that's bringing up the emotion, it's the emotion itself. But if we can create the kind of environment where people feel safe, Mm -hmm. again, that psychological safety, you know, sometimes people, and it's often men that'll say this to me, Mike, we're not going to like hold hands and sing Kumbaya, are we? (laughs) And my my, my response is often like, no, we're not going to do that. I said, but I tell you what, if you were a part of a team where you could hold hands and sing Kumbaya, that would be a kick-ass team. Yeah, that we weren't afraid to do that together, that we didn't think that was weird. We didn't turn it into a joke that we trusted each other and it was safe enough. Hey, you know, what? we're all going to hold hands right now and we're going to sing Kumbaya together. How's everybody feel about that? Like, I know that sounds weird and corny, but like if the team wouldn't react and think that was too strange and would just do it, that's probably a really good team. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love that exercise that you mentioned as well, because you can go around a second time. I don't know if you've ever done this and said, well, if you really, really knew me. And then a third time, if you really, really knew me. You know, I mean, that's when it gets juicy. It's, you know, that's when things really start to hang out. Well, it also shows us we're relational creatures. And here's the paradox, Chantal. Here's what I've seen over the years, whether it's related to gender or even race or generation, or orientation, or, or like I see this when I travel around in different places in the world too. The paradox is that on the surface, we're, we're very different. And I think it's really important, as we've been talking about, to understand, and particularly for some of us who may be less aware of some of the difference, what's it like to be you, different mm-hmm. than me? Mm-hmm. To understand, especially people who are in you know groups that aren't as represented, and at the same time, here's the paradox, the further down below that waterline on the iceberg we go, mm-hmm the more similar we become, mm-hmm. right? The yeah, more the- I love that metaphor in the book, the waterline. Can you explain it a little yeah. bit? Yeah. So it's like, think about the iceberg, right? I mean, it's an overused metaphor, but it's like just the tip of the iceberg pops up above the surface. That's what we see. But the vast majority, like 90% of even a really big iceberg, you know, like the one that sank the Titanic big iceberg, like it's most of it's under the surface of the water. We can't see it. And our own capacity for authenticity and vulnerability and our connections with other people is that we're conscious. We consciously choose to lower our waterline and expose more of our iceberg, so to speak. And again, the further down we go, the more similar we become. Because again, I'll do that exercise or have that type of vulnerable conversation. And it could be, let's like, let's say I'm just, I'm, you know, there's a, a woman in the group who's talking about something that's, you know, unique only to being a woman. She's talking about being pregnant. She's talking about going through some experience. It's like, I can't physically, personally ever relate to that experience and never will be able to. I mean, it could be a man who's talking about some experience that I've never had and probably never will have because he's different and his life is different, but I somehow can still relate. Why? I can't relate to the experience always, but I can relate to the emotion. Oh, I know what it feels like to feel scared or to feel sad or to feel excited or to feel hopeful or to feel dread or Mm -hmm. any emotion possible, right? And so the reason why this is really important, and I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had people come to me, particularly people who, again, look different than me, gender-wise or race-wise, and Mm -hmm. say, Mm -hmm. I had no idea you felt like that or even people like you felt like that. Mm -hmm. Do you know this notion that sometimes I think women erroneously think things about men that just aren't true? Yeah, totally. Yes. But it's like, do you think that? Oh, men seem like confident. Don't worry about how they look and don't worry about this and don't worry about that. I'm like, well, I don't know what men you're talking to (laughs) because that's not true for me and most of the men that I know. It's just 
men have been trained over the years, like women in different ways, though, again, to suck it up and put up a certain facade so as to seem like we're confident yeah. when in reality we're just as terrified as anybody else. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting to the end here, I just want to emphasize that everybody, it seems like, is so jacked up and overworked and tired. <laughs> and yeah. we all want to just be human beings. Yeah. And um, if we don't collectively men, women, and like I said, everything up, down and in between, if we don't collectively, you know, ask for this and, and first recognize it, which I love that, that that's the work of this is the awareness yeah. and first recognize how much we are covering up and hiding and adapting to a system that is so old and just so depleting and then, you know, speak up for something different, then I, I just don't know how we can continue, let alone I thrive. Yeah, right? I agree. So, well, I agree. And I, yeah. I think the work, the work that you're doing and the community that you've built, I mean, it really is about a new paradigm and it is about how do we, you know, move in a completely different direction and operate in a different way because, you know, my friend Tony Schwartz wrote a great book a few years back called "The Way We're Working Isn't Working," right? And I couldn't, I couldn't agree with him more. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, whole self to work. Thank you, whole self always. Anyway, I mean, I know <laughs> yeah, your previous books are, you know, not necessarily just about work. So right, I appreciate right. you tackling this very needed area, and it's been so much fun. Can we just say, like, this is gonna when you work this way. Not only is it more human, it's just fun. Yeah, totally. It's it fun. Is. This is fun. fun. This work is fun. Yeah. It's hard, but it's fun. Yeah. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I appreciate your time and um, good luck to you. I know you're in a big launch right now. And <laughs> I hope all of you all on this podcast just go out and grab this book and all the other books that Mike has written because you are um, really a gem, Mike, you are, that's the word that comes to mind when I think about oh. you. And, um, and I just, I know I'm friends with so many, you know, we have so much crossover in our, yeah. in our worlds and, um, there's, you know, basically universal across the board that <laughs> really you are a wow. gem and very Thank special. You. And I'm just honored to spend this time with you. Okay. I appreciate it. Okay. Take good care. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this Emerging Women podcast, please subscribe and review it on iTunes and share it with your friends. When you do, it makes a huge difference in spreading this work and building this movement so that women worldwide can access these incredible conversations, tap into their own emergence, and support the rise of women globally. Also, be sure to check out the Emerging Women membership community with live sessions every month hosted by inspiring female leaders and me, founder and CEO of Emerging Women, Chantal Pirat. The membership is a hub of resources and support, full of brilliant emerging women like you who are stepping into their growth and their leadership. You can join for free at emergingwomen.com. Until next time, may your journey be inspired. Thank you.